0: Hi folks, welcome to Beyond the Noise, uh, a regular source podcast with me, David Jameson, where I get beyond the headlines and look at issues that are in the news uh, in a bit more depth. Uh, I'm very glad to be joined today by Chris Nynum, who is the uh, vice chair of the Stop the War Coalition, an organisation which has put on many of the the largest demonstrations uh, in British political history in the week that the... Uh, the uh, a bill has passed uh, the, the court through the Commons restricting uh, the, the right to protest. Um, first of all Chris, thanks very much for joining us. No, it's good to be here. Could you just um, talk about uh, first of all, um, this piece of legislation um, which it should be said restricts not only rights to protest, um, it's also thought to restrict. Um, the activities of the the traveller community in the UK Um, and it's drawn together something of a coalition um, uh, in opposition to to quite uh, a draconian law and uh, uh, Chris your organisation was obviously in the parliament protesting this uh, bill this week. Um, Could you tell us about this legislation and um, why people involved in protest movements uh, fear it?
1: Well, I mean, there's a whole range of reasons. It's a very, very long um, document. But I mean, essentially it's gonna give a massive amount of uh, extra powers to the police to control, limit, and ban uh, all sorts of different kinds of protests. Um, I've been involved in negotiating and often sort of um, confronting the the, um, the police over demonstrations over the last 20 years. and I mean, the thought of going into a negotiation now with this amount of power in their hands is very, very worrying. It means that the, the bill basically um, means that the police um, can limit the times uh, when people can protest. If they want to have a protest, the police can say during the day what times they can protest. It, uh, it, they can use noise levels as a reason for... Um, curtailing or stopping protests happening. They, At the moment, um, static protests are pretty much, you know, um, you can pretty much organise a static protest without getting police permission. That's going to be, that's changed under the new bill as well. So many of the um, restrictions on marches are now going to be applied to static protests. Uh, there's lots of... Um, Elements of the bill, which means the which um, make increased surveillance, electronic and undercover police surveillance, a protest legal. Um, and there is, I think, in a way, the um, the worst thing is it brings in this principle that the police have to weigh the rights of protesters against the rights of those who will apparently be disrupted by the protest. Now you can see that is open to massive abuse. I mean. know and it's not just about street protests or direct action or any of these things for example picketing could easily come under the um under the sort of purview of that particular principle so uh, and as you say as well david it's um there's, there's there's a number of different elements of it which are attacks on the rights of, uh, to deal with criminalising trespass, which are attacks on the rights of the Roma and Gypsy communities. So, all in all, this is a massive uh, legal assault on um, people's ability and rights to protest.
0: I want to get on to some of the implications of that and, and how um, protest movements could uh, feasibly resist uh, th- such legislation. But first of all, let's discuss the the context in which this um, bill was passed. Uh, it came only a few days after um, a protest in Clapham Common uh, in London, which was a, a vigil by uh, women after the murder of uh, Sarah Everard, um, and, you know, it, it was a, a quite an unusual instance of, of the Conservative Party and the wider establishment um, sort of framing uh, what they were doing in the worst possible light, because, of course, a police officer um, has been arrested in connection with this murder um, and uh, the police broke up the, the the demonstration under the pretext of, lockdown uh, and this was only you know a couple of days before they were going to pass this very draconian bill creating suddenly a very strong um, alliance um, against uh, such moves. I mean do you think that um, the Conservative Party and and the wider kind of British establishment uh, have um, shown themselves in in quite an unkindly light um, when it comes to this uh, this move?
1: Yeah I mean I think you know this is definitely the bill and the behaviour on Saturday night um, and subsequently are signs of an increasing authoritarianism from the Tories. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, and I, in a way, I guess no one's particularly surprised given the right wing nature of the, of the cabinet. You know, um, I think people have been fearing these kinds of attacks on civil liberties for some time. I think it's, it's linked to, first of all, just that the fact that the you know that this is a particularly right-wing iteration of the Tory Party, of the Tory leadership. Uh, secondly, obviously they're using COVID, they're using the opportunity provided by COVID, which is a kind of you know quite a uh, uh, an unpleasant thing in itself to try and um, to to permanently ramp up um, police powers. And I guess thirdly, uh, the government and I guess, and I think the wider ruling class are concerned about um, the general level of kind of discontent in society. I mean, if you look at internal police reports and kind of um, various different sort of security think tanks, actually not just in Britain, but anyway in Britain, um, there's a very widespread concern amongst the elites about the kind of sense of alienation and anger there is in society um and you know that's going to lead them to take these kind of measures so i think you've got to put those three things together um and you come up with you know this bill kind of makes sense from the point of view of a of a slightly nervous
0: establishment really um yeah and and that's interesting because of course um the the lockdown measures we expect and you know hope uh, i suppose that they are going to um uh, dwindle in the coming months as hopefully um, the, the the virus continues to be um, suppressed. We've had a, um, a strange um, twelve months in regards to you know public politics, protests, um, lockdown conditions have created difficulties for people organising social movements. But at the same time, there have been large scale demonstrations like Black Lives Matter, like these solidarity protests um, by by women after this murder. Um, so, I mean, what do the next few months look like in regards to protest movements, and how important will it be to to reassert um, the demands uh, of ordinary people after a year when it's been relatively difficult to do that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean that's that's an interesting question, and it's hard to predict exactly. But I mean, I would just say that I think it's one of the one of the things that is least discussed. Um, in in kind of politics generally and on the left as well funnily enough is that over the last really going back actually a number of years even you could argue to the beginning of this century there has been an increase in general of um of kind of street protest and mobilizations and demonstrations that is really quite marked i mean there is some academic research about this and it's there's been there's been a steady rise i mean there's been some oscillation but basically there's been a steady rise in the level of uh, protest in British society that's, that's taken place over the last couple of decades so I mean that's one thing to to bear in mind which I think you know not surprisingly runs kind of in parallel with a growing distrust of parliamentary institutions and other institutions of the state um, so I think that's a sort of long-term trend I think in the shorter term you know um you're absolutely right it's been a difficult time for people including myself and people my colleagues and that trying to organize or trying to think about how to um to kind of you know express uh, opposition to the government on a whole number of different issues and it's been quite frustrating because you know by and large um it's not been, you know, it's been illegal and quite difficult to get protests out in the streets. There have been, as you say, however, some sort of spontaneous outbursts of anger that have been quite, um, quite impressive. There was the Black Lives Matter, was the most obvious. So very big demonstrations in Britain, actually, bigger than the the recent ones um, against violence against women, um, by quite uh, by by quite a. a um, uh, a, a multiple i would say um and um i think this is you know there's also actually the school students i don't know if you remember but over over the exam results in the summer 2020 there was uh, there was some big protests by school students as well yeah
0: i remember that it's quite big in scotland as well yeah
1: Yeah, so you sort of have this feeling on the one hand that, you know, it's very difficult to organize, but on the other hand, there's kind of discontent is simmering under the surface. Add add to that a couple of other things, in my opinion. One is that inevitably the kind of, um, the the sort of focus for the left that had been provided by Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party is now no longer there, so that avenue, Uh, for dissent and opposition has been closed down Uh, and the fact that I think which is kind of connected to all these different trends I think you are seeing uh, I don't want to exaggerate it but I think there's a there's a definitely noticeable increase in the number of strikes and industrial and the amount of industrial action that's taking place so you put all that together my instinct is you know and you can actually look at this there's polling evidence for this and sort of general opinion poll evidence for this, that I think, come the end of the lockdown, I think there's going to be an absolutely um, visceral sense that people want to get out on the streets and protest. I mean, you know, there's a, there's lots of other factors, including, perhaps most obviously, the, um, the absolutely abominable um, record of the government in handling, in mishandling the whole pandemic. So I think, you know, I think... I would, I would wager very, very generously on the idea that there will be big protests taking place very quickly after lockdown. And there's a kind of pent up demand for change that, you know, really doesn't look like coming from a very, very weak and right-wing Labour leadership. Um, and therefore I think will be sought more in the streets and possibly with further industrial action. So I think this is what is gonna happen. And then, you know, we're going to be in this sort of quite tense situation where protests will be called. I think, you know, I don't want to predict exactly the time frames or whatever, but I suspect lots of people will be coming out. Then we're going to come run up against this new legislation and this new right wing, very right wing Home Secretary and right wing Tory cabinet. So. You know, it's going to be. Um, I would suspect it's going to be quite a volatile period in the next few months.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, the, the government's been busy as well. We're, we're still to see uh, who will be made to pay for the uh, um, the costs of um, you know the lockdown and the pandemic and and so on, but based on prior experience i think we have a general sense of who that's going to be who's going to be made to carry that burden and of course also in recent days there was the um, the defense review um which uh, was about um upping the the cap on uh, you know the number of trident nuclear weapons um held and obviously for a scottish audience that's <laughs> just down the road in, in faz lane uh, for many of us um so yeah i mean there, there will obviously be a, a lot of different issues um focusing just dis- focusing discontent, um, in in your capacity as someone who was, uh, you know, uh, in the Stop the War Coalition, who was there in those huge historic demonstrations, um, I thought it was interesting if maybe you could reflect on um, how that movement resisted attempts to, uh, you know, to to restrict the rights of, of, of the protest movements. Because I can remember, for example, when the the march, the, the attempt to, to ban marchers from parliament square uh there was an attempt to stop the uh, the, the, the largest ever march in in, in london occupying uh, uh hyde park back in 2003 incidentally i remember this in in scotland as well and the way it was responded to in scotland was for example george square in glasgow was sort of commercialised and lots of um, tat was uh, moved into the square and lots of things were built in it to stop people congregating all the time in the, in the square. But how did the protest movements against the war in particular resist those attempts to, to corral the movement?
1: Um, well, I mean, you're absolutely right. There were, there were some quite serious attempts to kind of divert and to obstruct protests and demonstrations at a number of different times during that period and most obviously uh, the big demonstration the one that reached whatever two million on february the 15th 2003 about 10 days before the demonstration the labor home secretary at the time said we couldn't march to hyde park which is where it was all planned um that we'd have to go somewhere else and well she didn't actually say where that would be where that might be but um Uh, And the reason (laughs) given at the time was because uh, we might we might ruin the grass in the park, which was just kind of slightly weird. But anyway, I mean, the way we responded to that was just by essentially saying um, that we weren't going to do that. We weren't going to to move away from Hyde Park. Actually, what we said was we will give you uh, one other option. Which is will um, will march to Buckingham Palace and um, that was you know not something that the powers that be wanted to not an option they wanted to take up um, so they ended up uh, just you know um, there was a there was a series of kind of high level meetings with uh, loads of media around and um it was kind of a major incident it was like on the front pages of the newspapers and stuff but because we did stand our ground uh what actually happened was i think uh it's it's almost certain that that move by the government actually increased the size of the demonstration because the demonstration became about civil liberties as well as about the war in Iraq and and um, supporting the Palestinians so you know I think the first thing you've got to say is don't back down in these circumstances don't don't be intimidated stand up to them Um, the the right to protest has always been something that's been contested you know it's never been something that's been granted it's been something that's that's been had been fought for time after time after time and um, yeah you have to you have to Uh, be very, very resolute. The second thing which I think is important is, I mean, to be honest with you, was numbers. I mean, it's one thing going into a police negotiation if you're going to, you know, organise a protest or whatever and there's going to be a few hundred people there. In which case, really, there's probably not very much point in negotiating at all, to be honest. it's another thing if you are fairly confident about getting hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people in the streets, because in the end of the day, there's really nothing the police can do to ban that kind of demonstration. That's the truth. Um, and so, you know, this has got. I mean, it's an obvious point, but it's maybe one that sometimes is forgotten that you know, the 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 the, the most effective movement, the movement that has the most ability to um, to uh, to march where it wants to to cause disruption um, where necessary is the march that has huge support that has that can mobilize you know thousands and thousands uh, of people and that's really the kind of movement we're going to need it seems to me to roll back um, these kind of attacks so I mean it happened again actually in that same year in November when George Bush came over, we were called in to Um, the Scotland Yard and we were told, you know, we already published our plans to march past Downing Street when George Bush was going to be in Downing Street. The the police said absolutely not, this is just not going to happen. And they sort of actually they stupidly implied to us that it was the CIA that was telling them it couldn't happen, um, which obviously we immediately press released. Um, And uh, again, we said, well, I'm sorry, you know, we're not going to be told what to do by you and we're certainly not going to be told what to do by the um, American security services. So we just said, well, we're going to march again now. You know, the the tipping point here was when the police realised that even though this was on a weekday during the day, um, that we were once again going to get hundreds of thousands of people. And, they, and again, they had to back down in those circumstances. And we did march past Downing Street um, at the time we said we were gonna march. So, so that was very, very another very, very important moment. And they then did try and stop us going to Parliament Square and different demos. I remember one actually slightly smaller demonstration later on where the police had said, we were not gonna be able to go from Trafalgar Square to Parliament Square. Tony Benn was with us at the time. The late lamented. Um, he had it was a it was a it was a demo about the Afghan war. He had he said, "Okay, I'm going to come down to Trafalgar Square. I'm going to put my medals on from the Second World War, and if I have to march on my own down Whitehall, I'm going to march down to Parliament Square." And obviously, we were with him, uh, and we had I don't remember five thousand sort of that sort of number. But, again, it was very, very difficult for the police, confronted by, you know, a high-profile politician with his medals on, who's, who's, like, widely loved in society with a few thousand people behind him. The police lines parted. They, they knew they couldn't take that one on. So there's always a political dimension to these things, you know. And, I mean, there's lots of campaigns, as I think you said earlier, David. There are campaigns now emerging to kill the bill and against the... Um, attacks on civil liberties and it's absolutely right that we have those campaigns Um, but it's also right that we think you know the the way the fundamental thing we have to do to overturn and to push back on this legislation is organize big protests organize militant protests and you know tap into the widespread dissatisfaction that people feel about the, the the new nuclear warheads about the police racism about the actually the other thing we haven't really talked about is the the kind of new austerity that is undoubtedly going to be a product of the um economic crisis you know all of these things it seems to me are a feeding into a real sense of anger and if that anger becomes mobilized then there's no bill on earth that can stop people protesting
0: yeah thanks for that and and i suppose just finally i mean i think it's important you emphasize that because i think you know over the past year and and quite understandably in some senses there's been a bit of a mood of as you said earlier paranoia uh, and also a degree of um you know cynicism about political life and 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 so on and i think it's it's very easy for people especially when people have been isolated through most of this period um to feel that to feel the overwhelming. Uh, power of the state of you know big corporations a fear over surveillance over the influence of you know big tech in our lives and the state in our lives and and so on Um, and I I suppose um, I mean do you think it's important that people exercise that democratic right apart from anything else to undermine what you know could feasibly turn into quite a dangerous or cynical or paranoid view of the world
1: Yeah, no, I think that's that's a very good point. To be honest, Um, I mean, and it's not surprising that at one level, you know, we have seen um, right-wing governments uh, voted in in well, previously in the U.S., but in Britain, a number of hard-right governments in various different countries in Europe and around the world. We have seen the emergence of a kind of you know, um, a, a, a really rancid right-wing and very sinister right-wing politics um, that has gained support, some support internationally. Um, these are all real things and and a strengthening of the state, which I think is a direct kind of, um, it, it is kind of a response, as I was saying earlier, to um, to sense of, you um, yeah, some sense of challenge on on the part of, of elites. Um, but I think it is also important to recognise various other, uh, other things. One is that uh, I think that, you know, the sense of the, the growing sense of crisis that, fear, that people feel um, in society at the moment can be uh, tapped into by right-wing forces that we've seen in the United States recently and so on. Um, But it also can lead people to to more progressive directions. And I think, in fact, what you're seeing in most parts of the world is a kind of polarisation. The centre ground really can't hold. Um, You know, centrism has sort of various different forms of centrism has been sort of, uh, you know, very much backing the sort of neoliberal project and for that reason have been hollowed out. Uh, and so you're seeing you know, a growing sense of alienation from the, from, the, from the mainstream traditional political parties, which goes to the left and to the right, but it does go to the left. Um, and, and we need to, to be aware of that. And I think, you know, I mean, otherwise, why would you, we have had Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party for five years? I mean, that was a direct product of a, of a very left-wing mood um, in Britain, I think. Which, which you know, has been challenged by his defeat, but nevertheless is, is essentially still there. So um, that I think, combined with uh, yes, we have a, a very right wing government, but we also have a very incompetent government. It seems to me, and you know, um, that's been proved by the by the their handling of the pandemic. Um, but I think there are a bunch of chances. By and large, you know, I think they're they're very low-level politicians um, who do a lot of favours and backhanders to their mates. They're very nasty politically, but they don't have a lot of depth in terms of um, in terms of their politics. And actually, what happened last weekend is an example of that. I mean, what an absolutely crazy decision by I'm sure and I'm sure it was pretty patel to say that the police should go in and attack viciously attack uh, and arrest people who are protesting against that crime. I mean, and especially three or four days before the police and crime bill was going to go in front of Parliament. Um, That was a crazy decision. The combination of the protests and actually the the police response led to a situation where Labour, who shockingly were going to abstain on the bill, were forced into a position of having to oppose it. Um, so you know, this is that was not a sign of a of a kind of um, sophisticated uh, right wing um, government. So I think I think the government has an all has all sorts of problems, really. You know, and we shouldn't we shouldn't forget those problems. Um, and in a way, the 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 lack of opposition from Keir Starmer has made life relatively easy for them. I'm not sure it's going to be so easy after the end of. Um, after the end of lockdown, when people have other ways of uh, expressing their opposition and discontent. So I think the points you make are are, are very important. You know, we're both in a very frightening situation, but also in a situation where I think there's a lot of, of opposition and a lot of critical thought and a lot of solidarity for key workers and, you know, massive opposition, for example, on the question of Trident and the warheads, you know, the CND did a poll recently, 77% of um, the population think that nuclear weapons should be abolished around the world. You look at all the foreign policy positions of support for the Yemen war and um, support for spending more on, on um, the military in general is 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 very, very low, very, very low. We still have a situation where the foreign wars that Britain has been involved in are Uh, opposed by the vast majority of the population so so you know it's it's as i say it's it's more of a polarized situation than some sort of uniform drift to the right which is sometimes what you what you feel as if people um people are thinking um and that's important because it, it, it determines how you respond i think we have to respond to this attack with you know with with a certain level of confidence that we will get a lot of support there will be a lot of people who are very very angry at what this government's been doing and who will see this for what it is an attack on a basic uh, civil liberty so uh yeah it's a challenging situation but it's one that i think if we respond in the right way i think we can uh, we can hopefully deal with
0: yeah um interesting times and some interesting months ahead i'm sure thanks very much for joining us chris good to be on david Interesting months uh, ahead, and you can follow them all at sourcenews.scott and on this podcast. Uh, and I look forward to speaking to you all again soon.